This is the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, episode 105. The next time you need professional real estate marketing flyers, letters or cards, don't ask your graphics people for an estimate or try to create something great in a Word doc. Instead, head over to jiggler.com and set up a free account. Jiggler is the online creative marketing tool for agents and it's jammed with proven templates including flyers, cards, stationery, letters and awesome social media posts. And it's so easy to use. If you can drive your Facebook page, you can drive Jiggler. So say goodbye to expensive graphic design bills, wasting time with clunky programs and marketing ideas that don't work and say hello to Jiggler. Set up your free account today at Jiggler.com. That's J-I-G-G-L-A-R.com. Welcome to the Top Agents Playbook Podcast. The very best tips, tools, and ideas from real estate's top performers. Now, here's your host, Ray Wood. It's February 1993, and the U.S. Federal Agency, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, or the ATF, has obtained a warrant to search the Mount Carmel Ranch just outside of Waco, Texas, which is about a 90-minute drive south of Dallas. The ranch is the headquarters of a deeply religious cult known as the Branch Davidians, which separated from the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1955. Their self-appointed leader is charismatic wannabe rock star David Koresh. According to Branch Davidian survivors, when the cult was tipped off that a raid was imminent, Koresh ordered selected male followers to take up arms and be ready for the raid, while women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. So, When the ATF arrived on that Sunday morning in 1993, the compound was prepared, and Koresh allegedly told his followers he would attempt to speak with the ATF. Who fired the first shot is in dispute, but what ensued was a two-hour gun battle where four ATF officers and six Branch Davidians were killed. Cult members also fired on and hit helicopters circling overhead. Following the gun battle, the ATF withdrew and the FBI were called in, including my guest for this episode, former FBI negotiator Gary Nessner. It's well documented that as the siege went on, the FBI leadership became divided as to the best plan of attack, to negotiate or use tactical pressure to force the Branch Davidians to surrender. Leading the negotiating team, Gary was able to secure the release of 35 people, including 21 children. And I think it's worth noting that no one else was released after Gary was rotated out of his negotiating role. The siege would eventually end on April 19, some 51 days later, in a huge fire. 
In all, 76 people had died, including Koresh. This month, Paramount Network released Waco, a six-part made-for-TV series about the siege. Gary's role is played by actor Michael Shannon. This is my third interview with Gary, and each time I learn something new. And you might wonder what agents can learn from an FBI negotiator, but from where I'm sitting, it's pretty simple. There is always a way through. We just have to have the skill to find it and the patience to stay the course. As real estate agents, we negotiate for a living. Let's say you need to secure a price reduction on one of your listings. What arguments will you muster to support your request and how many times will you need to meet with your client for them to agree with your opinion? I find most agents try once or twice, then give up. I haven't seen Waco. The six-week series has only just started and it's not available outside the US as yet. But the reviews are very favourable and I've included the official trailer in the show notes for this episode. Before I get started with the interview, I want to suggest that you get hold of Gary's book, Stalling for Time. I believe it's the best book on negotiating I've ever read and it will change the way you approach almost every negotiating situation. Or better still, if you love audio books like I do, you can get the audio version narrated by the man himself. I'll include the link in the show notes for this episode, but all you need to do is go to audible.com and do a search for Stalling for Time. After all, if you can learn from a professional who negotiated with someone who thought he was the next Jesus, negotiating with your real estate clients is not that hard. Connect with Gary at GaryNesner.com. That's Gary, G-A-R-Y, Nesner, N-O-E-S-N-E-R.com. And that link is in the show notes as well. Okay, let's do it. Well, hi, Gary, and welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Great, Ray. Good to uh, be on your show again. I certainly enjoyed our last time together. Thank you. Thank you. We've had a couple of episodes now, and they are two of the uh, highest rating uh, episodes on the podcast. So uh, a big a big thank you to you. And um, you've been pretty busy since uh, since uh, our last interview. There's been a lot going on with, uh, with the series. Um, did... Did the producers of Waco become aware of your book, Stalling for Time, and things just went from there, or how did it all come about? Yeah, as I understand it, um, the, the the brothers John and Drew Dowdle um, were looking at uh, a different subject matter when they came across um, the book of a, a surviving Branch Davidian uh, named David Thibodeau, and that was about four years ago, and it it gave them the idea to try to show Waco um, the incident in a more in-depth way from both the perspective of the people inside looking out as well as the authorities, the FBI and the outside looking in. Yep. Yep. And once they found his book, he obviously describes his perspective on life inside the Branch Davidian compound and uh, David Koresh as the leader. And so they went about eventually looking for the outside perspective, and I think I've written one of the only few books from a law enforcement person who was there. So they found the chapter in my book that concerns Waco, and they reached out to me about two years ago. And, you know, I, I liked the approach that they were taking and the fact that 
even though it's a dramatic series versus a documentary, it gave them uh, much more time to explore the complexities of of this tragic event. And yeah. um, so I'd been in long discussions, and you know, that one thing led to another. The book rights were purchased, and filming began this uh, this last summer. Yeah, yeah. One question I've always wondered, and I, I've 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 researched this a little and haven't been able to establish, and um, it just goes to the timeline a little bit um, uh, that'll answer a few questions for me. After the initial um, showdown or, or firefight, I guess it was two hours long, where, where the uh, the AFT were involved uh, and there were four members uh, killed and I think six Branch Davidian, um, four members of the AFT killed and, um, uh, sorry, ATF, am I getting it... Uh, <laughs> I was going to correct you, and you caught it yourself. <laughs> Thank you, ATF. I'm sorry. Um, alcohol. That means alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And fi- it's a and firearms. separate federal agency from uh, the FBI. Do they still exist? Yes, they do. Okay. Okay. Um, after that happened, the FBI w- were called in. How long was it between when that firefight finished and when you hit the ground in Waco? Well, the firefight began on Sunday morning, February 28th, and... Um, I received a phone call, I think, in the early afternoon, so it was some hours afterwards, um, instructing me to go to the airport where the FBI kept keeps some of its airplanes and jumped on a plane and flew out there. Okay, so you were there so the same day. pretty quick. I got out there that first night. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, you've expressed before some disappointment that the Waco siege could have been handled differently. I think that's well documented. Does the does the release of the series and the role you 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 play in it give you some vindication? I, I suppose so. I think um, the, the predominant uh, view that most people have that have any view whatsoever about Waco is a pretty polarized view. Um, some people think uh, these are all crazy nuts inside the the compound and and they got what they deserved and. And then the other side of the coin is people who said that the government's bad and evil and just came in and decided to kill everybody. And, and of course, neither one of these simplistic uh, perspectives is remotely accurate. Um, it, it's a far more complex story. There were some good nonviolent people inside who I suppose you could say were um, you know, naively following a, a sort of a manipulative, self-serving, narcissistic uh, uh, leader in, in David Koresh. Um, and then on the outside, there were certainly those of us within the FBI that were trying desperately to get these people to come out safely. And we did end up having some disagreements within the FBI is the best way to do that. My role as the chief negotiator, uh, was to support dialogue and to, you know, engage in a cooperative interaction with the Davidians and get them to surrender peacefully. And, uh, there was an element in the FBI that wanted to exert more pressure externally to sort of force them out. And that's the sort of headbutting we had within the FBI. And then, then of course, we're dealing with David Koresh, who's an extremely challenging person to, to negotiate with. Well, would you say he was mad? I mean, here's a guy who I think, and I'm just from, from my research, and correct me if I'm wrong, had fathered 10 children and had multiple wives, some of them very, very young, Um he had a lot to lose from surrendering, like the rest of his life in jail. Um, but would would you think he was like completely deranged? And how would you negotiate with somebody like that? No, I, I think um, you know when we say mad or crazy or whatever, it, you know, it, it essentially denotes a, a psychotic condition, uh, 
you know, uh, being out of touch with reality. And he certainly wasn't, in my view, a, a diagnosable, uh, you know, uh, schizophrenic or anything like that. He was a, you might call him a, a sociopath, someone whose interests were primarily, you know, self-centered. And he used religion, um, how much of it he believed, we can argue about, but religion certainly became the, the vehicle through which he controlled the lives of those around him. And it's a position and a status that he savored and enjoyed. And, you know, but he wasn't crazy. When we we would negotiate with him and sometimes he would be reasonable and, you know, calm and easy to talk with. And other times he would be enraged and angry and um, argumentative. Uh, but he was never out of touch with reality that, you know, that, that we felt. Yeah. Was was the phone line or the phone connection between your position and where Koresh was in the compound, was it, was it constant and consistent? Was it always working? When I first got there, there were two phone lines that went into the compound. One of them was uh, a general phone that they all used and the primary phone through which we ended up negotiating with David Koresh. There was also a, a Harvard-educated attorney who was amongst the Davidians who kept a separate phone line to conduct his legal business, Wayne Martin. Right. So when I got there, there was actually parallel negotiations going on. Uh, from two different locations. And that's, for a variety of reasons, something we don't want as negotiators. So I moved fairly quickly to consolidate that down to one line, and that line went through us. Um, you know, we don't want the news media or the public or somebody else calling in and uh, making false representations or agitating the situation or giving people a chance to say their last goodbye, whatever it is. So we try to isolate the phone lines so that all communication that they have is through us. And it took some hours to accomplish that, but that's ultimately what we had. Okay. Eventually, we ended up putting in field phones, um, literally hard wire between us and them. And um, that worked pretty well through most of the ordeal. Okay. Okay. How did you get a field phone in there? We literally drove it up to the compound and dropped it off uh, in front, and they sent somebody out to pick it up and bring it in. Okay. Okay. How did you prepare for your calls with Koresh, and and how did you engage him? Well, what we always do in a, a situation, what I think the public doesn't always understand, Ray, is that, you know negotiations is really a, a team sport. Um, it's not just one negotiator um, trying to compete with one adversary. So we have a team of people. There would be six, seven, eight negotiators per shift. And what we typically, we, we would assess the situation at the time. Where are we now? What are the issues of concern? What are the goals that we have? And based on that, what are the two or three points that we want to try to inject into this next phone call? In addition to laying out our agenda in terms of the things we wanted to bring up and, and discuss, we would try to anticipate to the extent we could what we thought Koresh would be talking about and what he would be interested in. And we try to craft ahead of time, to the extent we could, the appropriate responses we would give to that. So, I mean, that's how it works. And we try to leverage the collective skill, experience, knowledge of the whole negotiation team to, to engage in that preparation. For, for example, every time we ended a phone call before anybody could get up and leave the room and, 
you know, use the restroom or go get something to eat or take a smoke break or whatever, I insisted that the team sit down and say, okay, how do we analyze what just happened? What did everybody hear? What does it mean to you? Um, how do we assess this? And then secondly, based on that, what's our strategy for the next call? What do we anticipate? Because you got to be ready for that because that next call could come in with no warning. It's not like I'll call you back in two hours. It's sometimes it would randomly, the phone rings and there they are. So you've got to be ready for that and have done your homework and prepared, you know, for the strategy that you want to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gary, were there times in, in those 51 days when you felt you were really, really close to securing a total uh, and peaceful release? Yeah. I mean, or surrender, uh, I guess I should say. Yeah, I understand. Uh, we started off, you know, in, in a fairly positive way that, you know, by the time I got there, a ceasefire had been agreed to between ATF and David Koresh. So by the time I got there, you know, quite a few hours had transpired with no additional gunshots or loss of life. And that's a positive indicator. That's something to build on. And emotions had subsided to some extent. Um, so those were all factors that, you know, you, you would hope to have. And in that context, we were able to get Koresh to release some children. We had, you know, I don't know, six or seven children come out in the first couple of days. This ultimately led to a discussion where Koresh said if we, um, if we would play a, a message nationally that he had about his interpretation of the seven seals of the book of Revelation in the Bible, that he and all of his followers would surrender peacefully. So I... Um, convinced our overall commander to allow him to make that tape. We listened to the tape. We played it for the religious department, religious studies department at Baylor University, and we were convinced that there was nothing particularly problematic in it. There was no hidden messages about impending suicide. So we played the message nationwide. And unfortunately, in response to that, Koresh had a bit of an epiphany and, uh, <laughs> and decided that God had told him not to come out after all. Now, you know, as negotiators, we were certainly disappointed, and, but not totally surprised because these sort of things happened. But the commander was very irritated and took it as an affront that we had made an agreement, we had fulfilled our part of it, and yet Koresh did not. Yeah. And it really set us off in a bad course. But that was the one time where we were prepared. We had buses lined up. We had a lengthy discussion with Koresh's assistant about how the exit plan would work. You know, we let them buy into the arrangement, so they were part of it. And so we were all very optimistic, and it was a, a real disappointment when that didn't come through. Yeah. Um, I wanting, wanting the Seven Seals published reminds me, and I just thought of this, reminds me of the 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 Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski's uh, demands to uh, have his manifesto published, which yeah. I think was... Um, well, uh, well, well. Before then, obviously, I wonder. I wonder if that was his motivation. Who knows? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people have very strong b beliefs about things. David Koresh certainly felt very passionate about his beliefs, and you know, there are many that feel that you know this is so important and this is so relevant to me that I need to share this with the whole world. I mean, that's probably the basic philosophy behind all yeah. proselytizing yeah. of any religion, you know, and. Uh, the compelling need to share the good word with someone else. And if that's not what you want to hear, it's not necessarily well received. But, you know, that was fine with us. We were happy to give him that uh, platform to share his views. 
um, you know, so long as it brought about a peaceful ending and we weren't concerned about his message getting out. We were just concerned about them all coming out. So it was very frustrating when I think he had uh, ambivalence, you know, part of him was considering coming out and wanted to. And another part of him was scared to come out and submit to the authorities. So he conveniently had this, uh, you know, message from God telling him not to come out. And it's, it's sort of hard to argue that point, you know, what can I do? God told me to wait. So it's, it's, it's hard position for a negotiator to counter. Yep. Yep. And you didn't have a line to God, of course. So there was nothing you could do. He certainly wasn't speaking to me that day. So, you know, (laughs) so your role in the film is played by Michael Shannon, who stars in many films, um, uh, including some of my old favorites, Groundhog Day, a Superman, a few others, but most recently the acclaimed uh, adventure drama that's getting a lot of news at the moment, the shape of water. Um, how did it feel having a Hollywood star play play you? Was that a bit surreal? Yeah, I think that's an understatement. I mean, um, <laughs> we we met fairly early in the process and um, right before filming started, and he's just a wonderful guy, and um, he really wanted to, I think, understand me, and he wasn't trying to imitate me in his depiction of me, but he was trying to capture, I think, the essence of how I thought as a negotiator and how I behaved. And I think he did that wonderfully. And we ended up, I was out there uh, for, it was 11 weeks of filming. I was out there for three weeks uh, on two separate trips and you know, basically had dinner with him every evening. Right. So we became friends. And when I see, I've seen all six episodes. The only, the first episode was shown two nights ago, but in watching all six episodes, which I've been able to do, I think he, He's pretty brilliant in the role. He's just uh, a really an amazing actor and uh, very expressive. I think it's it's really interesting for me to see how he can convey in in a simple look, a facial gesture, an expression, what would it take me many many words to say? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the mark of a good actor. He knows when less is more. Yeah. Um, and 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 I really admire his his skill. Yeah, he's a he's a great actor and uh, very and a great human being. You yeah. know, he's, he's a really interesting guy. Wow, wow, that's uh, that's that's interesting. Um, well, speaking of actors, uh, Taylor Kitsch plays uh, David Koresh in the series, and I picked up a review this week of Waco, and I'd be interested in your response. Sure. Um, and it goes like this: Paramount Network's first original series also paints an uncomfortably kind portrait of the kitsch portrayed David Koresh as a man of faith fighting for his liberty against intrusive Uncle Sam as Shannon's conflicted and resolution-seeking federal negotiator unsuccessfully tries to keep everyone's fingers off the triggers. Sorry, that's a rather long-winded way of saying, and I've seen this a few other times as well in a few other reviews, that um, some of the reviewers feel that uh, there was a a um, perhaps unwarranted sympathetic leaning towards uh, Koresh's position. What would you think about that? Well, that, that expresses some of my own concern. You know, I I'm sure I will have some former FBI colleagues that will take me to task. But when you know when when your book rights are purchased and they were kind enough to let me review scripts and provide input, some of it they embraced and some of it they didn't. On scene, I was able to share my thoughts about some of the scenes and was able to get them to modify them to some extent. But at the end of the day, the, you know, the producers and directors, you know, are using the material as they see 
it, it best represents what they're trying to achieve. I think uh, my own take on it is that because they're trying to show two sides, they're, they're trying to be fair and balanced and show, you know, the charisma of David Koresh that attracted so many to follow him, to give up their wives and their, you know, their personal fortunes or whatever it was to this man. And what, what made him so enticing and alluring and Taylor Kitsch, unfortunately, is such a wonderful actor and is so brilliant in this role that I think he's become a little bit too sympathetic. And, you know, I mentioned that to the directors that I, I was generally pleased with everything that was done. I would have liked to seen uh, David Koresh portrayed a little more darkly because I think um, he did have that charming, gregarious, charismatic side, I suppose. But he also had a very dark, manipulative side. And... Uh, you know, I I think the producers and directors feel that they're showing that sufficiently, but some of the critiques, like the one you mentioned, you know, sort of feel as though uh, that it's not portrayed quite dark enough. And and I'm I can't argue against that. Yeah, yeah. I guess as a consultant on the set, um, what kind of questions did you get from writers or the director, or was that all pre-done? Was the writing all packaged and finished before you arrived? No, I mean they were still. When I got there, they were still working on the scripts. In fact, I'm not – I think I saw the first or second scripts before I got out there um, and had a chance to write in my comments and make my suggestions and, and send them to them. Then when I got out there, the additional scripts would periodically come my way for comment. And, and I think what pleased me most was that the – the writing team as well as the director and producers uh, seemed genuinely interested in, in what I had to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll just give you one real interesting example, Ray. And then some of this occurred during filming too. They filmed the scene where Michael Shannon playing me, uh, walks into a bar to meet the local sheriff for the first time. Now that's a sort of fictionalized version of how they met, but nonetheless, when they filmed the scene, I'm inside waiting for Michael Shannon to enter from the outside, and he comes in wearing this FBI raid jacket with these three-foot-high FBI letters on the jacket. And I almost fell out of my chair, and the director said, what's, what's the matter? And I said, no FBI agent would ever wear <laughs> a raid jacket like that to a Texas bar. It'd be like putting a bullseye on your... <laughs> Uh, on yourself. I said, you just wouldn't do that. And they said, well, we thought that would give him authority. And I said, no, no, no. It, uh, <laughs> number one, I never wore one of those. I wasn't one of those kind of guys that, that wore a lot of FBI stuff. And, uh, I said, and number two, that would just be plain stupid to, you know, to, to display who you are like that. You have no idea who's in this bar, what their perspective is. So yeah. <laughs> they, they changed that. Uh, so that's an example of some things. There was another scene where I saw some fellas walking by a, a command post and they were holding their long rifles. They were tactical guys and with the barrels aiming straight at everybody they walked by, you know, and I, I stopped the producer. I said, listen, I, I'm not a tactical guy, but if somebody walked by me pointing, you know, uh, you know, an M one at me, I, I think I would jump all over their case. I said, you gotta, yeah. you gotta hold the barrel of that thing high up in the air or straight down in the ground, usually up in the air. And I said, that's, you know, you'll get law enforcement officers that'll watch that and they'll, they'll, they won't like that at all. So they, they change that as well. So there's some little things like that, that as a technical advisor, you can have some input, you know, I don't want to overstate the case, you know, they weren't coming to me every two seconds asking me things, but there were a couple, 
um, things that I saw that I, I, you know, I commented on and a few other things that they came and asked me, how would you have said this? What, what would have been important? So it's nice that when I see the film later to see those suggestions having been incorporated, you know, was, was very nice. And again, not all of them were. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, well, you went. You weren't the. You weren't the only person on the set that was there twenty five years ago. I understand you met Siege Survivor and Branch Davidian David Thibodeau on the set. How did that go? Well, it was very interesting. Um, I had not met David before, and I hadn't read his book when I met him. I have since, and um, you know, I, I think um, a lot of people were very curious to how he and I would get along, and I think we were very polite and. Nobody's looking to get into an argument. Um, I remember, I think, one of the first days there, just by happen chance, he and I ended up being in the the set cafeteria having lunch at the same time. And, you know, we were sitting at a table across from each other alone. And his back was to all the cast, and I was facing them. And, you know, from my peripheral vision, I could see there was about 50 people just (laughs) staring at us, you know, uh, perhaps wondering how we would engage with each other but we got along fine we clearly clearly have some different opinions about aspects of what happened um you know i think david has some misperceptions about some of the things the fbi was doing outside and why i mean there were mistakes aplenty you don't need to uh invent some so i've tried to educate him on that a little bit and i think he's he's got a better understanding of that now and certainly i've learned uh a lot of things from him about what they were doing and thinking inside. So David and I have respect. We've been done a number of interviews last week together in New York. Um, Again, there's always going to be things we disagree on who started the fire, um, you know, and, and things of that nature. But, you know, we found a way to get along fine and I have respect for him and I think he does for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's 25 years ago next month. I think it's, um, it's a lot lot of water under the bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the weapons, uh, this is a touchy subject any day of the week, but the weapons and ammunition build up at the, at the Branch Davidian compound was substantial. Um, I read the, I, I looked at the numbers, there was all sorts of uh, rifles and, and semi-automatic weapons and, and pistols and ammunition, etc. Do you think current gun laws in the US leave the gate open for another Waco? Well, uh, I don't think it's just merely the possession of weapons that would cause a Waco. But, but the, you know, we have a lot of uh, – America's a big country. There's a lot of people with, um, you know, non-traditional beliefs, uh, whether they're religious or otherwise. And there's certainly a large contingent of people who have a very negative viewpoint about the government. And some of that's been exacerbated of late because of our political discourse in the United States, which is pretty abysmal right now. And – there is a, a group that seems to be fomenting a, sort of an anti-government uh, you know, way of thinking that I, I find very worrisome. Um, no, I think, you know, there will be disagreement in law enforcement. For me, our gun laws are absolutely insane. I, I believe in our Second Amendment and the right of people to have weapons, but I, I don't believe anybody should have uh, an assault-type weapon. You can argue as... Some do, well, that's not an assault weapon, so forth and so on. But for me, weapons designed for the battlefield should not be um, in the hands of civilians. Uh, I just think the carnage that 
those weapons can uh, deliver is just un- unnecessary for personal protection or hunting or any other legitimate use. And there was a time where those weapons were not allowed. And back early in my career, when I was actually out arresting people uh, as an FBI agent working fugitives, I never worried about that kind of arsenal that I might have to face. And I, frankly, I feel sorry for police officers today that, you know, they don't know who's got what. They wouldn't know <laughs> and, what they're walking into. Would yeah. And, and the lethality. But, you know, in America now, we have such a debate. You know, we had the Las Vegas shooting and we have school shootings. It seems yeah. like every other week. And even after the famous Sandy Hook thing with the children, we still don't seem to have the ability to have a a mature adult conversation about what reasonable steps we might take to curtail some of this. And it just becomes a hotbed political issue. And it's very unfortunate. Uh, your own native country, Australia, made some very decisive moves after the what is it the port arthur shooting and it made, all, it made all the difference in the world i think it's uh i've always uh, envied my my australian friends for that courage to do that it wasn't easy for the politicians but they did it and we we don't have that kind of courage in in our uh politics right now no no well that was that was prime minister john howard at the time made the decision and 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 got it done it was ironic that uh that the whole waco incident started with a firearms breach i mean that's what that's what triggered the whole debacle i i'm sure they had no idea of the volume of uh of weapons that were uh, in the compound crazy well there was hundreds of weapons and i i can't remember what the numbers are i think it was like a million rounds of ammunition or something like that now you know the davidians would say well we're just legally you know selling weapons at gun shows as a way to make money and you know obviously the atf w- would suggest that what they were doing with the weapons the converting of them from you know, legal status is semi-automatic to fully automatic, you know, is a violation. And there were grenades that uh, were spilled out of a, a mail delivery that came to the attention of the government. So, there, you know, there was a number of uh, very questionable activities ongoing. So it's not as though the raid took place without some justification. You can certainly criticize the manner in which the raid was executed and the fact that it wasn't called off after it became known that the element of surprise was gone. But nonetheless, the, the ultimate rationalization uh, to conduct a, a search warrant and arrest warrant for Koresh, you know, had some merit. Yeah. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there have been any seizures in the US on that scale since Waco. Um, what what do you think the FIB, uh, the, the FBI learned from, from the whole Waco incident? Well, we, we have had some, I mean, this is a unique one because of the, the religious component. But before Waco, we had you know Atlanta, Oakdale, uh, Talladega prison riots that all lasted eight days or more. Um, we had a standoff with some right wing militia uh, in Arkansas. Um, after Waco, we had the 85 day Montana Freeman siege, a smaller group, but no less problematic and dangerous. Um you know, I went to the Republic of Texas siege, helping the Texas Rangers deal with another anti-government group. And so there, there's been a number of incidents. And I, what I say to people, which is something I think that surprises many, is what we learned was to do at Waco, what we learned was to do things the way we've been doing them before Waco and what we've done successfully after. I would submit that the uh, FBI decision-making um, shortfall uh, – kind word, problems were a byproduct of some personalities that really 
had a management style that departed from the standard norm that we had developed and led the world in in the FBI for many years. The people around the world came and learned from us. This is how you do this stuff. And then we get the Waco situation and we do something differently. You know, the most glaring example is you may recall that during the siege for some days, some very loud music and, uh, you know, uh, irritating lights were were broadcast at the compound. Well, that that's not part of FBI methodology. That's not our standard approach. And that's not something the negotiation team was happy with. And in fact, we tried very hard to, to get it stopped. But so that's, you can say, well, the FBI learned not to do that. Well, no, we, we knew not to do that beforehand, but it got done anyway. And it's hard to explain, but that's the way it was. Well, Koresh was a frustrated rock musician. He probably would have loved the, uh, the rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you never know, but they were playing Tibetan music and Nancy Sinatra, which I don't think was his, uh, genre, but, um, I get it. These boots are made for walking. Get out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really silly and quite quite embarrassing. And, um, you know, it happened again later in the incident, I understand. But when I was there, it it happened, and I, without my knowledge, and I tried to stop it. It took me three days to get it stopped, and only then by going over the head of the on-scene commander to uh, to headquarters. Because, it's, you know, at best, it's ineffective. It's just not a it's not a valid tool and, and it makes you look so stupid. And I think one of the things that's bothered me through the years is people assume that was a purposeful negotiation strategy when it was in reality, anything but. Yeah. And, and it would also serve to unravel any, any inroads and, and advances that, that you'd been able to make. My, my core beliefs uh, in terms of negotiations is you succeed in getting cooperation from people by being sincere and genuine trustworthy and reliable you develop a relationship of trust you uh, stand by your word you you convince people to come out because it's for their own good when you uh, purposely irritate them through your physical actions or any other abusive type of uh, demonstrations those are impediments to relationship building and those should be avoided at all costs unfortunately in a very challenging complex situation like this that's costing a phenomenal amount of money and taking an awful lot of time and the fbi feeling pressure to resolve it um people began to do things uh, we call it the action imperative they feel they have to do something to make something happen and when you feel that you often end up doing the wrong thing yeah yeah um i know you've said in the past that that uh, i wrote the question down here where is it um you're a big fan of of using time as a weapon, but I guess mm. ti- I guess time in this case was running out. Well, you could argue, was it really? I mean, uh, the, the time constraint was one that we artificially put on it. You know, we were becoming impatient. There was external. I mean, the news media at the time, everybody in the news media that said you shouldn't have gone in there and put tear gas, you know, were the same people that a day before were saying, "What's taking so long? What are you powerless to get these people to comply with?" Uh, you know, you're the FBI. Why can't you just go in and get them and make them surrender? So, you know, you get that sort of, uh, you know, mixed signals from people and their positions change. But there was pressure to to get it resolved. It's it's a long, difficult process. You spend 51 days trying to uh, deal with a very troublesome character like David Koresh, who often changed his mind, would promise to do one thing and do something else. It's frustrating to people. And in fact, I tell people that the number one attribute of a negotiator and by extension, a negotiation team is self-control. We don't overreact 
um, to things that irritate us or insults that come our way or disappointments. We just persevere and stay on track and, you know, use time to our advantage. And uh, yet others in the uh, management of the scene process, uh, without that training and experience, can none, let their frustrations get the better of them and quickly try to exert force to compel people to do things. And that's that's the challenge we had in the FBI. I mean, I, I've often told people my biggest challenge was to get David Koresh and my bosses to act reasonable at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if if you... If I would assume that remaining cool and calm would would be rule number one in negotiation. Um, that was clearly broken, and not not by your actions, obviously, but that was clearly broken a number of times. Yeah, I mean, you know, if 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 you're in your house and you're barricaded and you committed some crime, and I'm trying to get you to surrender, and you know, I'm trying to convince you that it's for your own good, and you'll be treated, you know, with dignity when you come out. Nobody's going to hurt you, and you'll get your day in court and so forth and so on. If that's my line, and at the same time you look out your window and you see a armored personnel carrier crushing your new car in the driveway and knocking over your kid's swing set, and, you know, who are you going to believe, the nice man on the phone or the angry man in the tank? You know, that's the kind of, yeah. you know, simplification of, of the mixed signals that were, in a, you know, inadvertently sent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd I'd like to say congrats on on uh, again congrats on your book stalling for time. It's an excellent book. I I reread that chapter again leading up to today. It's a it's a fascinating read and your experiences and time as a as an F, FBI negotiator. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's been exciting. I mean, um, I'm reluctant to celebrate this what I think is a great TV production overall. Um, because it is a tragic event, but I think it's part of history and it's important that people see that um, this situation is probably far more complex than people had thought. So Random House has now come out with a paperback version after seven years of my book being out and I just recorded an audio book. So, you know, hopefully um, more people have an opportunity to read that if they become interested in, in this six part series. Well, I definitely recommend it. As I said, it's not it, it hasn't it hasn't aired here in Canada as yet. As uh, as you mentioned before, we press record. It hasn't been uh, the the deal hasn't been sewn up, and it's not in Australia, or New Zealand, or anywhere else, where else as yet. But it soon will be. Um, so uh, and I think um, when are we going to see you on Oprah? It's only a matter of time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I was on Megyn Kelly last week on Monday and. Uh, did NPR's All Things Considered, and um, I'll be on the Alex Witt Show on MSNBC this weekend. So there's been a few press-related uh, appearances, uh, you know, based on all the things going on here, and that's that's been interesting. And you know, again, what really makes me feel good about all this, Ray, is is that something I spent 30 years of my career mostly doing, and the the whole concept of negotiation and and gaining cooperation and using verbal skills to avoid violence. I think that comes out pretty strongly in this six-part miniseries that, you know, th this is something that we should all think about in our lives, and whether you're in sales or if you're a diplomat. Let's find ways uh, to work together rather than argue and think the worst of others and, uh, and be more confrontative. So if anybody takes that away from what they watch or what they read in my book, then I, I feel like I've made some contribution. Yeah, well, I think that they're sage words in uh, in the times that we find ourse ourselves in at the moment. And 
and I guess you're negotiating lessons of you know the power of influence uh, to change situations and and change lives. I, I want to say congratulations on your success. Uh, congratulations you. on on your role in uh, or your your part in in Waco. It's um, I can't wait to see it. I've been uh, I've been searching on my uh, on my pay TV uh, guide for uh, the last week or two and hoping it'll come up. So uh, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Ray. I always appreciate it. I appreciate our, our past uh, interviews and um, friendship that we've developed. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, you, you're very welcome, Gary. Th- thank you so much for your time. All the best. It's no coincidence real estate's top agents use real estate's best software. Locked On is so popular with top producers because it's laden with features, but so easy to use at the same time. Backed by the number one support team in the industry, agents say Locked On is fast, reliable, and like having two assistants. If your real estate software and systems are holding you back, why not experience the ultimate cloud-based solution and take your productivity to the next level? To get your free 30-day trial and for special discount for life deal, go to LockedOn.com forward slash Ray. 